and welcome to The Bunker, your need to know on news and politics seven days a week with me, Dr. Kate Devlin. The Industrial Revolution in the 18th century was a technological, socio-economic and cultural game changer. It centred on the factory, on manufacturing, profoundly influencing everyday life for those in what we often term, for want of a better word, industrialised countries. But what's happening some 250 years later? Recent figures show that UK manufacturing is ranked eighth place in the world, but now there are new trends that contest traditional ideas of technological progress and that challenge the feasibility of traditional industry. Joining me today is political economist Dr Justine Hoga, Assistant Professor at the University of Cambridge and author of The Future of the Factory, How Megatrends Are Changing Industrialisation. Justine, welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about traditional manufacturing? What's its legacy? Why is the factory so important? Well, we could go back thousands of years, but maybe we should go back a few hundred years to the Industrial Revolution, because that's really when things in the manufacturing world started to change. Uh, Mechanised production became a big part of how we transform raw materials into finished products. And that tremendously boosted firms, factories, countries' abilities to grow their economy fast, to develop their technologies fast, achieve productivity growth, and so on. So since around the Industrial Revolution, up until today, this process, this idea of economic growth and development and productivity growth within capitalism has become almost synonymous with industrialization. Uh, And that's, in a sense, why when we talk about quote-unquote developed countries, we refer to them sometimes as industrialized countries. So your book explores four megatrends, the rise of services, of automation, the way production is now global, and impact on the environment. So I'd love to explore these one by one. So let's start with the rise of services. And as you point out, for, for the most profitable manufacturing companies in the world, that profit's now coming from non-manufacturing activities. How has this happened? That's a good question. Um, There are a few dynamics at play here. One is obviously that the type of activities that are the most innovative is changing. So if we look at, you know, a company like, for example, Apple, uh, that produces the iPhone, a very, very uh, important product in today's global economy, um, some of the most valuable activities today come from the service segment, like design, research and development, and branding, after-sales services. One important point I make in my book, though, is that some of these activities are actually core to manufacturing, like, for example, industrial design. And that's also why we're seeing that some countries that have over time lost manufacturing capabilities, like the United States, are now scrambling and spending billions and billions of dollars to get back manufacturing capabilities. And that's one important thing that's that's changing now that increasingly we're seeing how manufacturing is back on the agenda to drive economic prosperity. And so this isn't really limited to tech companies of the global north, is it? This is a wider scale. That's that's correct. Uh, I would mainly say that the kind of the most profitable or the biggest companies that are in the spectrum of uh, services are based in the global north, like Netflix, Spotify, uh, and, and those manufacturing companies that profit a lot from services like Apple. But we are also seeing some countries within the global south starting to reap the benefits of services like India, for example, 
with its software companies to some extent China as well although it's you know mainly a manufacturing powerhouse but companies like TikTok for example so yes that's true and then what surprised me because I hadn't really considered it this way is that tourism is also a significant type of service yes yes especially for countries in Africa that have been growing fast like uh, Rwanda for example Tourism is an important source of export revenue, of, of, of income. It's not, you know, I wouldn't say that it's a very reliable source of income if you want to achieve long-term economic development and technological change. But, you know, especially since the wave of globalizations in the 80s and 90s, some countries are really prospering based on tourism. Turning to automation, which is really big news at the minute, not least because of the arrival of generative AI. We've been through automation before, right? Yes, we have. Um, in my book, I say that the first automated industrial process was a flour mill developed in the late 1700s. Potentially could be before that, but it's safe to say that automation in production has been around for over 200 years. So in, in terms then of technological advancement, you know, this has happened before. What's different this time around? Well, some of it I think we have yet to see, right? And there's been talk about how artificial intelligence is going to impact automation and the displacement of jobs in particular is a big topic when it comes to digital automation technologies and AI. But the most granular studies that look at how automation will impact the workforce in the future say that we'll see a restructuring of the labor force in line with historical trends that won't actually be as massive as some people suggest, or the hype might be a bit exaggerated is, is what I suggest in the book. Now, let me be very clear that I'm here talking about the displacement of jobs. I'm not saying that the impact of artificial intelligence isn't big. It's certainly big on the economy, and we shouldn't underestimate that. But I don't think there's reason to believe that we'll see massive unemployment anywhere in the world due to the introduction of, of AI-related automation technologies. That's really interesting because that seems to be one of the key things that people are scared about, that mm. they are going to be replaced. But as you remark in your book, there are other jobs that arise out of this. Yeah. So automation can be you know, understood as a way of technological enhancement. And generally, when productivity growth increases, then that creates new job. In my book, I have an example uh, of how the personal computer did displace a lot of jobs, but created more jobs than it displaced. Now, of course, restructuring isn't necessarily something that isn't painful for anyone, right? And we are seeing in a lot of industries that they are suffering due to the implementation of automation technologies. And we need to take that very seriously. But the argument I'm making is that on an aggregate scale, we probably won't see unemployment rates changing because of automation technologies. That's quite reassuring. <laughs> During COVID and also with Brexit, everyone suddenly became experts in just how dependent the UK is on overseas suppliers. And your book explores just how unfair and uneven those global value chains can be. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. There are a lot of dynamics at play here. Um, so in globalized production today, we nor typically see that companies in the global north are so-called lead firms. I talked a little bit about the example of Apple and the iPhone. And this is also an example I, I provide to illustrate how 
the distribution of profits in value chains are unfair or are uneven. And um, we typically see that the companies that make products in value chains that actually manufacture them get a very low share of profits. And there are obviously some high-tech manufacturing, some low-tech, and then workers and firms that specialize in assembling a lot of manufactured products in the global production systems, almost exclusively based in the global south, make even less. So for the Apple iPhone, that has for the past few years been workers who assemble the iPhone based in China, and that accounts for less than 2% of the total retail price of an iPhone, which is almost nothing. So what role then do organizations like the World Trade Organization play in that? Um, they play an important role. Obviously, there are things that, say, domestic governments can do, like antitrust legislation to curtail the power of certain transnational corporations. So, for example, the U.S. can look to learn from the EU in terms of reducing the power of certain corporations, and that will also have a global impact. The WTO is the main organization in the world today to regulate international trade. And the mandate of the WTO is to make trade flow as freely as possible. And the idea is that more trade is good for all countries in the world. And the evidence suggests that to some extent this is true. Now, all, all good, right? But when you have some countries and nation states and some firms far ahead in the game in terms of international competition, then international agreements proposed within the WTO that normally try to make trade free, not give options, say, to developing countries to use certain protectionist elements, use certain subsidies to try and nurture and develop their industries. When they're not allowed to do that, that makes it really difficult for developing countries to catch up to the high-income countries. So when a system of free trade and less regulation is imposed by organizations like the WTO, that generally makes it harder for countries in the global south to catch up. So this is entrenching that disparity between those industrialized and less industrialized places? Basically, yes. A word that's used a lot in this field is international competitiveness, right? Mm -hmm. And this is a word a lot of us have heard, and especially, you know, every domestic politician will say that it's important to ensure the competitiveness of firms and so on. But it's also kind of weird that we live in a world in which nation states compete against one another, right? And in any competitive game, Players don't only strategize to get to the top of the podium, they also strategize as to how they can stay on top of the podium. So the point I try to make is that the playing field isn't level in the world economy, and that the trade agreements uh, that are proposed by the WTO does very little to try and make this playing field level. Given that it is such an uneven playing field, are there things that we as individual consumers can do if we want to be more ethical in the consumption of these things? I am wary of touching that subject. Um, what I try to put focus on is that we need systemic change in the world economy. And I think it's great that people want to make a difference by changing how they consume, but it's also very tricky and difficult to trace, say, how ethical companies are in their practice. Um, just on a side note here, there was a study carried out at the School of Oriental and African Studies years ago looking at fair trade plantations, coffee and tea plantations in 
Uganda and Ethiopia finding that the low-skilled farmers that worked on these plantations weren't remunerated more in the fair trade ones compared to the non-fair trade ones. And we have, we probably, you know, read countless examples of how ethical practices that companies say they have far down the supply chain aren't as ethical. So even if we try to do what's best as a consumer, I would advise consumers to have a huge dose of skepticism in terms of what companies brand themselves as in terms of corporate social responsibility. I think we see this in other areas as well, like greenwashing, for example. So let's talk about ecological breakdown, because the Earth's average surface temperature has warmed by about 1.1 degrees C since the start of the Industrial Revolution. So can we really encourage economic growth when economic growth has been one of the causes? Talk us through green industrial policy. That is one of the biggest questions um, that I'm trying to address in the book. Um, I think looking at the evidence of how ecological breakdown is happening, both through the emission of, of certain greenhouse gases and also through material footprint, which I emphasize a lot in my book, I don't think there is enough focus on that. You can have decarbonization, but not sort of a reduction in use of the Earth's resources, and that can be a huge problem. There is a very, very close link between ecological breakdown, defined as both looking at uh, carbon emissions and resource use and economic growth. So my reading of the evidence is that economic growth cannot decouple from ecological sustainability broadly. So at some point, we need to talk about how to challenge that. Should we think about degrowth? Because that seems to fly in the face of everything that these companies are trying to do. Yes, these attempts of green industrial policy and green growth are in many ways, um, we should welcome them and applaud them and they push us in the right direction, but they're certainly not enough. And, uh, you know, even if we were to try to, to decouple from carbon emission, which we really aren't able to do or really aren't so far doing, a host of other problems remain. What I try to say, though, and this is a very important point, is responsibility for ecological breakdown is not evenly distributed in the world. There is a really important study in Lancet Planetary Health that shows in the past 40 years, the responsibility for ecological breakdown is landing exclusively almost exclusively on high-income countries. And that's just looking at the past 50 years, not even accounting for development since the first industrial revolution. So I argue that countries in the global north have to look at ways in which they can reduce their material footprint and their emissions. Now, whether or not this you know, means reduction of GDP, that's a somewhat different, although related questions, but that countries in the global south should have so-called more ecological policy space and industrial policy space. Um, we really need to target those countries that are responsible for ecological breakdown in the way we address this. All of this that we're talking about, we can kind of view that as an asymmetric concentration of power. Is there a way to address that, to negotiate that as we move forward? Yes, there are, there are ways. First, I think when it comes to matters of climate change and ecological breakdown, this observation that the responsibility for that falls on certain nations need to be reflected in things like Paris Climate Agreement. 
because right now it isn't. On the issue of trade, there are many things we can do to make the system more fair. Obviously, reform the WTO um, in a way that allows developing countries to implement certain trade policies that will perhaps push them uh, on a path of industrialization and development, um, work on stronger antitrust legislation, work on bringing funds into the WTO that can support negotiators for those kinds of countries. Because when we look at the way international organizations, and this is not just the point of the WTO, this is a broader point. When we look at how they operate, even those organizations that exist to quote unquote represent the world, the most powerful states have more power, they have more people, they have more lawyers, etc. And it also goes for the WTO. So we also need to seek alternatives for international organizations, for trade agreements, for development banks that are made by and for countries uh, in the global south. And are you hopeful that this could happen? Yes, I think, you know, we should keep pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will, as Gramsci said. Um, there is, of course, evidence pointing to the fact that, for example, uh, on the case, on, on, on the issue of climate change and ecological breakdown, that things are going to hell, sort of. Um, but of course, we should work towards uh, preventing and mitigating ecological breakdown to the extent we can. And there is still value of bringing attention to these issues and bringing attention to the evidence on these issues. Justine, thank you so much for joining me in the bunker. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please support The Bunker on Patreon. For as little as £3 a month, you can get extras, in addition to that warm, glowing feeling you get from knowing you're supporting handmade, independent media. I'm Dr Kate Devlin. Thanks for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Dr. Kate Devlin. The producer was Liam Tate, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.